Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I sit here today in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and it's a good day because I have next to me my shitty little rat dog, Jack-Jack, on one side, and on the other side, not my usual cup of steaming hot English breakfast and or Earl Grey tea. Instead, I have an unopened can of pink grapefruit seltzer. And I'm going to do you the great favor, listeners, of opening the can into the microphone because I know how satisfying that sound is, the satisfying sound of an aluminum can being opened. Here it goes. Oh, isn't that the best sound? That it, to me, that's just that's a that's a musical sound. It is the sound of refreshment. And now I'm going to take my first glug of pink grapefruit seltzer. Mmm, that's a good glug of soda pop. And we begin today uh, with somewhat happy tidings, somewhat unhappy tidings. Our dear friend Jude has now become betrothed to the less dear Arabella. And in his heart of hearts, Jude knows that Arabella is, as he says, uh, in, as he said in the last episode, she is not worth a great deal as a specimen of womankind. And we understand why, because she's just been trying to trap poor Jude with her womanly, wily ways. She really was just like, put it in, dude. Let's make a little Jude. And and then you can't go off to Christminster. And instead, you'll be stuck here 
pig farming with me. And so that's where we are. And Jude knows this. We, we, we're now getting an inkling into his deeper psyche. And we know he says at the end here, he says, for his own soothing, he kept up a factitious belief in her, her idea of her was the thing of most consequence, not Arabella herself. He sometimes said laconically, and it's unclear who he was saying this to, because to my knowledge, Jude has no friends. Ooh, 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 he's just a lonely boy. Ooh, 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 Jude's just a lonely boy. So we begin. The bands were put in and published the very next Sunday. I don't know what a ban is, but I assume it's some sort of an announcement, like a a wedding announcement. The people of the parish all said what a simple fool young Fowley was. All his reading had only come to this, that he would have to sell his books to buy saucepans. Those who guessed the probable state of affairs, Arabella's parents being among them, well, yeah, because Arabella's parents basically said, come fuck in our house, Jude. We're going to go to church, uh, and Arabella and Jude, like, you guys just kind of lay yourselves down there. Just kind of lay yourselves down there and make a little of that sweet gumbo. Um, Arabella's parents are Creole, oddly enough. It, it's not mentioned in the book, but it's heavily implied. Just come on in here. Make yourself some uh, gumbo. You're going to make some fine gumbo down here at the pig farm. You're going to have some gumbo. Uh, those who guessed the probable state of affairs, Arabella's parents being among them, declared that it was the sort of conduct they would have expected of such an honest young man as Jude in reparation of the wrong he had done his innocent sweetheart. The parson who married them seemed to think it satisfactory, too. So, one of the things that keeps coming up here is the contempt that Thomas Hardy has, seems to have, for all the women in this book. We have yet to meet a decent woman in this book. His aunt is a feckless relative. His girlfriend is definitely not the finest specimen of womanhood. And these are really only the, the, the two women that we've met so far. Hardy needs to, at some point, sort of redeem himself in this book in terms of through a modern lens. You know what I mean? From from the modern feminist lens through which I peer all things, because you know what a devout feminist I am. Those of you who followed my old podcast, Mike and Tommy Snacks, know that we were all about respect for women. And so standing before the aforesaid officiator, The two swore that at every other time of their lives till death took them, they would assuredly believe, feel, and desire precisely as they had believed, felt, and desired during the few preceding weeks. (laughs) I mean, you got to give it to him. Hardy has a little bit of a sense of humor. What was as remarkable as the undertaking itself was the fact that nobody seemed at all surprised at what they swore. 
Fowley's aunt being a baker, she made him a bride cake, saying bitterly that it was the last thing she could do for him, poor silly fellow, and that would it would have been far better if, instead of his living to trouble her, he had gone underground years before with his father and mother, even on his fucking wedding day. She's grousing that it would be better if he was dead. I mean, can you imagine? You're at your wedding and your one blood relative so bakes you a cake and says, I'll give you the cake. But honestly, it would have been better if you were dead. I mean, what is this? Why did he even invite her to the wedding? Well, I guess because she made the cake. She made the cake. He got to invite her to the wedding. Oh, Oh, congratulations on your marriage, dear. It would have been better if you were dead. I mean, that's bit. That's that's what I mean. I don't know. It doesn't say that she said it to him, but she said it. She's whispering. Oh, such a lovely bride, isn't it? Would have been better if he were dead. I love her. Of this cake, Arabella took some slices, wrapped them up in white notepaper, and sent them to her companions in the pork dressing business, Annie and Sarah, labeling each packet. In remembrance of good advice. You know what the, the, uh, the good advice was, right? Get knocked up. That was the good advice that Annie and Sarah in the pork dressing business gave to her. The prospects of the newly married couple were certainly not very brilliant, even to the most sanguine mind. Sanguine, sanguine. Sanguine mind. He, a stonemason's apprentice, 19 years of age, was working for half wages till he should be out of his time. His wife was absolutely useless in a town lodging, where he at first had considered it would be necessary for them to live. But the urgent need of adding to income in ever so little a degree caused him to take a lonely roadside cottage between the Brown House and Mary Green, that he might have the profits of a vegetable garden and utilize her past experiences by letting her keep a pig. But it was not the sort of life he had bargained for, and it was a long way to walk to and from Alfredston every day. Arabella, however, felt that all these makeshifts were temporary. She had gained a husband. That was the thing. A husband with a lot of earning power in him for buying her frocks and hats when he should begin to get frightened a bit and stick to his trade and throw aside those stupid books for practical undertakings. So to the cottage he took her on the evening of the marriage, giving up his old room at his aunt's, where so much of the hard labor at Greek and Latin had been carried on. A little chill overspread him at her first unrobing. Well, why? I mean, why? He's seen her unrobed many times previous. We know that. Uh, Well, I guess maybe we'll find out. A long tail of hair which Arabella wore twisted up in an enormous knob at the back of her head, was deliberately unfastened, stroked out, and hung upon the looking-glass which he had bought her. Oh, so her hair wasn't even her hair, and now he says, What, it wasn't your own? he said, with a sudden distaste for her. Oh, no, it never is nowadays with the better class. 
Nonsense. Perhaps not in towns, but in the country it is supposed to be different. Besides, you've enough of your own, surely. Yes, enough as country notions go, but in towns the men expect more. And when I was a barmaid at Aldbrickham, barmaid at Aldbrickham, she might as well have said she was a street whore. A barmaid at Aldbrickham. Why, I oughta... So now we're learning all kinds of things about Arabella. First of all, her hair isn't even her hair. She has been going around essentially in disguise. And we know emotionally she has been in disguise. And now we learn physically she has been in disguise. And now we're learning all sorts of untoward secrets about dear Arabella, a barmaid indeed. Well... Not exactly barmaid. I used to draw the drink at a public house there. Just for a little time, that was all. Some people put me up to getting this, and I bought it for just a fancy. The more you have, the better in Aldbrickham, which is a finer town than all your Christminsters. Every lady of position wears false hair. The barber's assistant told me so. So now she's getting a little bit high on her pig, as it were, a little bit high on her horse. But for the pig farmer, it's going to be high up on a pig. And she's saying, oh, Jude, Jude. She's already now talking down to him. Do you know nothing of the ways of the world? All the cosmopolitan ladies put on hair extensions. Haven't you ever watched Fox News, Jude? Do you think all those ladies on Fox News, do you think that's all their real hair? It is not, I assure you. They're all wearing the finest Russian hair clipped to their scalps with barrettes. Do you not know that, Jude? And yes, I was a barmaid. Of course, everybody's a barmaid in Aldbrickham. That's just the way it is there. Every young girl gets a position at Hooters, and we all strut around carrying baskets of wings. But it didn't mean anything, Jude. It didn't mean anything. It was very demure, I assure you. We wore nude stockings over our naked legs. And if the customers grabbed a little bit, it was only in the service of getting a larger tip, Jude. And we slapped their hands, we did. We were all very respectable there at Aldbrickham Hooters. And incidentally, any Hooters girls listening, I'm not saying anything bad about you. You have to make a living. I'm just saying, probably working as a barmaid at Aldbrickham, I mean, in Jude's mind, he's like, oh, you were a Hooters girl? I mean, maybe, I, I mean, I would have liked to have known that. And maybe he would approve of it or maybe he would disapprove, but he wanted to know. Jude thought with a feeling of sickness that though this might be true to some extent, for all that he knew, Many unsophisticated girls would and did go to towns and remain there for years without losing their simplicity of life and embellishments. Others, alas, had an instinct towards artificiality in their very blood and became adepts in counterfeiting at the first glimpse of it. However, perhaps there was no great sin in a woman adding to her hair, and he resolved to think no more of it. No, Jude, you're right. There is no great sin in a woman adding to her hair, and there's no great sin in being a Hooters girl. There's no great sin in any of it. But to what does it speak that she wasn't honest with you from the beginning? To what does it speak that she did not say until your wedding night, Jude, by the way? 
This isn't my hair, and these aren't my nails. And these boobs that you admire so much are in fact bags of silicon. What does it say? That she is willing to hide those things until the moment of commitment, at which point she lets her, so to speak, hair down. Thomas Hardy again laying it on a little bit thick. I need a break. This is obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you like the improv, you know what I mean with the improv, right? The yes and, the thinking on your feet, the jokes and the ha-has, and then the surprisingly tender moments. You need to be listening to Improv for Humans. Improv for Humans is one of the longest running shows here on Earwolf, and tons of your favorite comedians have been on it. Not me, because I have not been asked. It is hosted by... Matt Besser. You know Matt. I've known Matt for years. He founded UCB. Well, co-founded it. And uh, the world's most famous improv show, Ass Cat. Matt features some of the best improvisers in the world on Improv for Humans. And because of that, that, that sentence alone explains why I have not been asked to be on it. And a lot of comedians get their earwolf start by guesting on the show, like Lauren Lapkus, John Gabris, Mary Holland, Zach Reno, Jessica McKenna. It's a great way to discover your new favorite improviser. Improv for Humans. Listen to a new episode every Thursday in your favorite podcast app and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Welcome back to Obscure. I'm Michael Ian Black. Back to the book. A new-made wife can usually manage to excite interest for a few weeks, even though the prospects of the household ways and means are cloudy. There is a certain piquancy, 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 piquant, 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 piquant. There are some pecans about her situation. And her manner to her acquaintance at the sense of it, which carries off the gloom of facts and renders even the humblest bride independent a while of the real. 
Mrs. Jude Fowley was walking in the streets of Alfredston one market day with this quality in her carriage when she met Annie, her former friend, whom she had not seen since the wedding. As usual, they laughed before talking. The world seemed funny to them without saying it. That's how my daughter is. Oh, my God. I get into the car with my daughter as soon as she's with one of her stupid friends. And if again, if her friends are listening, they're not stupid. They're lovely young gals. But in the context of 15-year-olds, which is to say uh, teenagers, they're all stupid. And, and her friends are no exception. And she, my daughter, is no exception. They get into the front. They immediately start laughing over nothing. So that's what's going on with Annie and her friend Arabella. So it turned out to be a good plan, you see, remarked the girl to the wife. I knew it would be with such as him. He's a dear good fellow, and you ought to be proud of him. I am, said Mrs. Fowley quietly. And when do you expect? Shh, not at all. What? I was mistaken. Oh, Arabella, Arabella, you are a deep one. Mistaken. Well, that's clever. It's a real stroke of genius. It is a thing I never thought with all my experience. I never thought beyond bringing about the real thing. Not that one could sham it. Don't you be too quick to cry sham. Twasn't sham. I didn't know. My word. Won't he be in a token? He'll give it to E or Saturday nights, whatever it was. He'll say it was a trick, a double one by the Lord. I'll own to the first, but not to the second. Pooh, he won't care. He'll be glad I was wrong in what I said. He'll shake down, bless ye men always do. What can him do otherwise? Married is married. So she's saying, and we knew this already, but she's now admitting to her friend, guess what? Guess what, Annie? Guess what I did? I faked a pregnancy so he would marry me. She's saying, well, I took your advice, but I took it one step further. I wasn't getting pregnant, so I just told him I was knocked up. And then I let down my hair, so to speak, but he doesn't know yet. I haven't told him this yet. And Annie's saying, he's going to beat the shit out of you on Saturday. And she's saying, no, no, you don't know, Jude. He'll be relieved. He'll be happy. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll whatever. I'll get on my knees for, you know, 10 minutes. He'll be thrilled. Like, it's all going to work out fine. But the fact of the matter is, like, now I have a husband. He's got a wife. Like, it's all for the good. Again, Annie is terrible. Arabella is terrible. The aunt is terrible. And so now my my antenna are just attuned to the terribleness of women in this book. Now I take a drink of pink grapefruit sparkling seltzer water. I should note that Jack-Jack is listening attentively to my side. He's splayed out on my blanket on the couch here at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I think he's asleep. But I'm thinking about these uh, these women, these terrible, terrible women. And so what is Hardy's deal? Now, if I were inclined, I could ask a literary scholar or something, but I'm very comfortable. And Jack-Jack is obviously comfortable. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, and this is a first for me. I'm, I'm doing a little Hardy research as I am... Uh, talking to you. Okay, so Slate has a highbrow section. That should work. 
And I should note that this article is entitled, if you want to read it, A Pessimist in Flower, The Love Songs of Thomas Hardy, written by Megan O'Rourke. And they talk about Hardy and his wife, Emma, at 72, at 72, he began to write a series of love poems about his wife. So I'll just read it directly for you. I'll just read directly. For years, he and Emma had been estranged. She used to sleep alone in the attic where she used to, I'm quoting, where she used to write letters to her friends about his unkindness. This also says, not surprisingly, that Hardy was apparently not a big fan of marriage. He publicly indicted it. And this was a known opinion of his. So that when Jude came out, a bishop burned a copy of it and a Victorian newspaper called it Jude the Obscene, which would also have been a very good name for this podcast or any podcast. So there you go. Not a fan of marriage, perhaps not a fan of women in general. And Jack-Jack is still sleeping. And so back to the book. So she's just confessed that she faked the whole thing. And her friend's like, oh, my guy. And they leave. They depart. You know, they, they separate. Nevertheless, it was with a little uneasiness that Arabella approached the time when in the natural course of things, she would have to reveal that the alarm she had raised had been without foundation. The occasion was one evening at bedtime, and they were in their chamber in the lonely cottage by the wayside, to which Jude walked home from his work every day. He had worked hard the whole twelve hours, and had retired to rest before his wife. When she came into the room, he was between sleeping and waking, and was barely conscious of her undressing before the little looking-glass as he lay. One action of hers, however, brought him to full cognition. Her face being reflected towards him as she sat, he could perceive that she was amusing herself by artificially producing in each cheek the dimple before alluded to, a curious accomplishment of which she was mistress, affecting it by a momentary suction. It seemed to him for the first time that the dimples were far oftener absent from her face during his intercourse with her nowadays than they had been in the earlier weeks of their acquaintance. So if you remember when they first met, she had done this little thing where she sucked in her cheeks and it created this little dimple effect that she kind of liked, but it was all made up because everything about her is made up. And, and he goes, don't do that, Arabella, he said. Suddenly there is no harm in it, but I, I don't like to see you. She turned and laughed. Lord, I didn't know you were awake, she said. How countrified you are. That's nothing. Where did you learn it? Nowhere that I know of. They used to stay without any trouble when I was at the public house. But now they won't. My face was fatter then. Well, I don't care about dimples. I don't think they improve a woman, particularly a married woman and a full-sized figure like you. He's saying you look great to me, honey. I'll, you know, you don't need, you don't need to fake some dimples for me. You don't need to fake nothing. Like we're married and you're full figured and I'm happy and I'm working hard and we're going to have a baby. And he says, you don't have to do that. And, he, and she goes, most men think otherwise. Oh, I don't care what most men think if they do. Well, how do you know? I used to be told so when I was serving in the tap room. Ah, oh, that public house experience accounts for your knowing about the adulteration of the ale when we went and had some that Sunday evening. 
I thought when I married you that you had always lived in your father's house. You ought to have known better than that, and seen I was a little more finished than I could have been by staying where I was born. There wasn't much to do at home, and I was eating my head off, so I went away for three months. Well, you'll soon have plenty to do now, dear, won't you? How do you mean? Why, of course, little things to make. Oh. (laughs) She goes, oh. And he goes, when will it be? Can't you tell me exactly instead of in such general terms as you have used? Tell you? Yes, the date. There's nothing to tell. I made a mistake. (laughs) What? That's what he says. What? He sat bolt upright in bed and looked at her. How can that be? Women fancy wrong things sometimes. But, why, of course, so unprepared as I was, without a stick of furniture and hardly a shilling, I shouldn't have hurried on our affair and brought you to a half-furnished hut before I was ready, if it had not been for the news you gave me which made it necessary to save you ready or no, good God. And he's basically going, I wouldn't have done this. I would not be living here with you right now if you hadn't told me you were pregnant. Oh, my God. Like, what am I doing? What just what is going on? And she goes, don't take on, dear. What's done can't be undone. I have no more to say. He gave the answer simply and lay down and there was silence between them. When Jude awoke the next morning, he seemed to see the world with a different eye. As to the point in question, he was compelled to accept her word. In the circumstances, he could not have acted otherwise otherwise, while ordinary notions prevailed. But how came they to prevail? Right. He's saying, how, like, I, if I'm going to live my life, like, I just have to accept that you were telling the truth because now we're married and I can't live thinking that I married you under false pretenses. So I just have to accept your word. But then again, I know who you are and how, how came they to prevail? How can these regular notions just sort of stick in my head when I know in my heart of hearts. And we started today's episode by saying that she was maybe not the best specimen of womankind. There seemed to him Vaguely and dimly, something wrong in a social ritual which made necessary a cancelling of well-formed schemes involving years of thought and labor, of foregoing a man's one opportunity of showing himself superior to the lower animals, and of contributing his units of work to the general progress of his generation." because of a momentary surprise by a new and transitory instinct which had nothing in it of the nature of vice and could be only at the most called weakness. So Thomas Hardy is saying it's not wrong to want to, you know, make that gumbo. He's not saying that's wrong. He's saying that giving into that instinct for that Creole cooking is natural. It's just a moment. It's a moment of weakness, not of vice. And Jude, in eating up that po' boy, was only giving in to a terrible moment of weakness, a moment of weakness which will now curse him 
to this life that he has chosen for himself with Arabella, this life that there's a social ritual, he's calling it, that she said she got knocked up. So I did the right thing. I married her because in a moment of wanting to eat up that red beans and rice, he made a mistake. And the mistake now has undone all his years of learning all the grammars, the Greek and Latin grammars. He was inclined to inquire what he had done or she lost, for that matter, that he deserved to be caught in a gin which would cripple him, if not her also, for the rest of a lifetime. There was perhaps something fortunate in the fact that the immediate reason of his marriage had proved to be non-existent, but the marriage remained. So he's saying, I mean, he's going, I guess it's good that I'm not having a kid with her, but holy shit, we're still married. And somehow I need to figure out my life with this woman who I already am coming to despise. I was already coming to despise her before she even told me that she had made a mistake. What? And now he has to maintain in his own mind, the fiction of her mistake just to keep his own sanity. Okay, now that concludes chapter 9, but I'd like to keep going just a little into chapter 10. So let's do that after a short break here on Obscure. Friends, recently, my dear, dear producer Robin and I were talking about how we like to unwind and fall asleep after a rough day and she now hold on i need to i need to clarify something robin and i do not fall asleep together uh oh i don't know that we don't fall asleep at the same time but it's not in the same place you understand what i'm saying and she said you know michael i like to netflix and chill and i don't mean any clever euphemisms but sometimes netflix is just too exciting and then what and i answered i'll tell you what robin i'll tell you what when you Netflix and you can't chill because you're so wound up from all the exciting things, get yourself a Lisa mattress. You won't have any problems falling asleep. Lisa, they're the mattress company, you know them, and they leverage 30 plus years of experience, hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles, including Netflix murder, mystery watching, radio and podcast producers, yes, even them. And Lisa strives to leave the world a better place than they found it, together with the Arbor Day Foundation. Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell, and they are committing to planting one million trees by 2025. So Robin, dear Robin, go ahead and watch Evil Genius, even the part where a bomb is strapped around the neck of that poor pizza delivery guy. You watch that on your Lisa mattress, and you will still have sweet, sweet dreams. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash obscure. That's lisa.com slash obscure for $160 off. Lisa, a better place to sleep. I'm Michael Ian Black here, of course. Unobscure, and as I said, we just finished chapter nine. Jude has basically just been gutted 
just filleted. The knife dragged across his sternum, his innards exposed to the world, and Arabella's con has also been exposed to the world. So I kind of want to see what's going to happen here because I'm a greedy reader, and I think you're greedy listeners. So let's just read a few paragraphs into chapter 10. The time arrived for killing the pig. Yes! You see? I mean, I'm only five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words into chapter 10, and it had come time to kill the pig. Do you remember what the pig is, readers? Do you remember what the pig is? The pig is carnal sexuality. She, They were chasing the pig over hill and dale. Do you remember the lost pig? And that was the first time Arabella tried to really seduce him. They were chasing the pig. She met him by tossing the pig intestines at his face, and now it is time to kill the pig because the carnal sensuality, everything that had attracted her to him was now dead. And so it is time to kill the pig, which Jude and his wife had fattened in their sty during the autumn months. And the butchering was time to take place as soon as it was light in the morning so that Jude might get to Alfredston without losing more than a quarter of a day. The night had seemed strangely silent. Jude looked out of the window long before dawn and perceived that the ground was covered with snow. Snow rather deep for the season, it seemed. A few flakes still falling. Yes, snow had blanketed Jude's earth. Indeed it had. The frost had come early for Jude. At 19 years of age, his whole world now snowed over, the pig ready to be killed. I'm afraid the pig killer won't be able to come. Oh, wait, that's him, not her. I'm afraid the pig killer won't be able to come. Did you hear the difference in my reading? (laughs) The subtlety in my performance. I'm afraid the pig killer won't be able to come. He said to Arabella, Oh, he'll come. You must get up and make the water hot if you want Chalo to scald him, though I like singeing best. I don't know what that means. Singeing what? Chalo to scald him. Singeing who? The the pig? Is Chalo the pig killer? I don't know what any of that means. I'll get up, said Jude. I like the way of my own county. He went downstairs, lit the fire under the copper and began feeding it with beanstalks all the time without a candle, the blaze flinging a cheerful shine into the room, though for him the sense of cheerfulness was lessened by thoughts on the reason of that blaze, to heat water, to scald the bristles from the body of an animal that as yet lived, and whose voice could be continually heard from a corner of the garden. At half-past six, the time of the appointment with the butcher, the water boiled, and Jude's wife came downstairs. Is Chalo come? she asked. No. They waited, and it grew lighter. So Chalo's obviously the butcher, and they, they scald the bristles on the pig when they kill it. They waited, and it grew lighter with the dreary light of a snowy dawn. She went out, gazed along the road, and returning said, he's not coming. Drunk last night, I expect. The snow is not enough to hinder him, surely. 
then we must put it off. It is only the water boiled for nothing. The snow may be deep in the valley. Can't be put off. There's no more victuals for the pig. He ate the last mixing of barley meal yesterday morning. Yesterday morning? What has he lived on since? Nothing. What? He has been starving? Yes, we always do it the last day or two to save bother with the innards. What ignorance not to know that. Right. She's saying, look, I know everything. I know what they do in the city with the hair. I know what they do at the alehouse with the girls walking around, shaking their booties. And I know what they do on the farm with the pigs. You clear the innards for a day or two before you kill them so that there's not shit in it when you slice it open and it doesn't smell so bad. That accounts for his crying so, poor creature. Well, you must do this sticking, right? See, this is the inevitability of it, isn't it? The butcher can't come, and so he's going to have to kill his own pig. He is killing his own sensuality. He's killing himself, in essence. You must do the sticking. There's no help for it. I'll show you how. You've already showed us how, Arabella. Thank you very much. Or I'll do it myself. I think I could. Though as it is such a big pig, I had rather Chalo had done it. However, his basket and knives and things have been already sent on here, and we can use them. Of course you shan't do it, said Jude. I'll do it, since it must be done. And I'll close on that, as Jude is getting ready, essentially, to cut off his own dick for Arabella whom he married under false pretenses. The pig is out there starving on the snow-covered yard, his innards empty of food. What will happen? Will he take Chalo's knives and bring them to the throat of the poor sow? What will he do? To find out, tune in again on the next heart-wrenching episode of America's number one Jude the Obscure podcast, entitled Obscure. I am your reader and friend, Michael Ian Black. Until next time, adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com. And subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Judy Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. 
Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que nos está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aquí Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. O donde sea. Spanish Aquí Presents.